Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the things we like to cover on this podcast is thinking about what impact basic income might have with different communities. Since it's a policy that would go to everyone and really is aimed at systemic reform, understanding what that actually would mean to different constituencies out there and, and how, it, how it would really affect their lives. Today, to help us sort through some of those issues, we have Ritu Modi, campaign manager for Presente.org and Vocal Fellow, focused her fellowship on learning and relationship building in the digital organizing space. Welcome, Ritu. Thanks for having me. So you work with Presente.org. Can you tell us about the work that you do there? So I do a variety of things. I do the normal, fun, digital organizing stuff where we run a lot of campaigns based either on petitions or corporate shaming or cultural shift around immigration, criminal justice, predatory lending, um, equal pay, and actually a variety of other economic vehicles. Um, and then I also do a lot of work on how do you bring the learnings, the relationship building from on the ground organizing where you are interacting with folks one-on-one -on -one into a digital space. What does that look like? What could it look like? And can you just tell us a bit more about Presente's mission? What is it that the organization does? Sure. So Presente is the largest um, Latinx digital organizing platform, and its purpose is to bring together policy and culture to promote equity for all communities of color focused specifically on a Latinx perspective, and that's both national and international. So what first got you interested in the basic income? So actually, I think what brought me to basic income was thinking about um, with Presente Latinx communities that are losing their jobs to automation potentially or might be um, and the decline of labor organizing. So in this realm, but when I was in university at Berkeley, I actually studied basic income as a method of equity in India because they had started some basic projects throughout India to see if universal basic income could help rural communities and specifically women in those communities. So that was the first time I'd heard of it. And are there certain employment sectors that you see as particularly affected by automation that you're focused on? I think a lot of what we've been looking at is um, how it would affect domestic workers and farm workers who tend to have a large Latinx majority in the workforce um, and looking at how technology is being used to either equip folks to do the job better or to get rid of those jobs entirely to create profit for corporations. So those are the two communities we've been looking a lot at. You recently contributed to a report titled, Who Pays? The True Cost of Incarceration on Families. Mm. Can you tell us a bit, how might a basic income help low-income people to better handle their interactions with our criminal justice system? So I think one of, one of the misconceptions with universal basic income is that it could solve all the other problems we have, like racism and sexism and nativism, and it won't do that. So if we're looking at the criminal justice system as it currently exists, when I was a public defender in Nashville, one of the biggest things we saw is folks could not go to trial because they couldn't pay the bail amount. And so if you can't pay the bail amount, um, you're stuck in jail till your trial date. And most people can't afford that because they're working hourly jobs. So a very like baseline is, oh, maybe folks could afford bail, but our bail amounts are unfair and I would argue unconstitutional. Um, but I think there are a lot of ways it can affect folks who are involved with the criminal justice system because 
Because of the profiling, um, the criminal justice system predominantly goes after communities of color, black communities, low-income communities, and immigrant communities. And those are also communities that could really benefit from the opportunity to have access to greater education, to family care. So a lot of the folks I represented, they had no one to watch their children, which is why they didn't show up to court dates. Or they were working an hourly job, so they couldn't take time to come to court. Or they'd have warrants out for their names because they couldn't pay fines and fees that would add up over years. And then they'd lose their license, and then they couldn't drive to work legally, and then they'd get arrested. So universal basic income would provide some economic stability in all those areas, whether it's taking care of your children, access to education, or even just being able to pay like court fines and fees. I think that's a great point that uh, basic income doesn't solve all our problems. It just makes them easier to handle in a lot of cases. You spoke recently on a panel at Netroots Nation about a progressive vision of basic income and mentioned how you saw basic income as a potential vehicle to drive culture change in the U.S. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think a lot of our identity in the United States is really based on what we do, right? People ask you, what's your name? And then what do you do for work? As if that encompasses who we are. And even if you look at Forbes magazine or Business Insider, it's like, how did these CEOs do it all, right? They wake up at 5 a.m. and then they go work out. And it's like, well, if you talk to a domestic worker... Actually, they're working longer hours, often harder hours for very little pay. Um, And the same thing is true of a farm worker or a variety of jobs that are hourly wage jobs, right? And I think what universal basic income has the potential to do is allow folks to be separated from their work identity, which we have given worth to, right? Like if you're up here in a corporation, if you're at the highest level, you're somehow worth more than the person that's cleaning your floors. That's not necessarily true, nor should it be true. And I think universal basic income allows for us to question that a little bit, but also allows for folks to pursue different aspects like passion. Um, So that could be something like artistic or that could be something like I want to take better care of my children or that could be I want to actually spend more time engaging in civic duty. Like I want to be more involved in how our voting process works. So there are huge benefits to having folks not have to work hourly jobs and universal basic income creates a small space to have that discussion and a very difficult space because we're built into a capitalist society that thinks, you know, everything is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So if you can't, how can I have a conversation about your worth? Universal basic income allows for that to shift a little bit. So what other ramifications, if, if we actually manage mm-hmm. to start to shift perceptions around that, to, to change the predominant narrative that's out there, what other repercussions does it have? How does that affect other parts of our life? I mean, I think a few things, right? I think like any time that you are fighting against a privilege or an entitlement, (laughs) there's definitely a backlash. So there would be a backlash, I think, in terms of if people feel like you're questioning their worth and you're in the higher echelons of income, that's going to be a huge issue. We know right now the United States has a really high level of income inequity. And so in terms of closing that gap, that can also have repercussions in terms of like protest or folks being like, okay, now you're taking away my privilege. You're taking away my wealth. I'm being oppressed, right? Um, So I think in terms of negative repercussions, you might see anytime you question something, there is a reaction that comes with it and sort of sometimes an anger or a rage or misunderstanding, a fear around worth that gets risen up. And so I think that's a possibility. 
I think the positive benefits are much higher in the sense that we might actually have a more engaged civic community, which the United States is not known for. Um, and that can look like a lot of things. Like it, democracy is supposed to be for the people and the fact that we make it difficult for people to vote, that we don't have like a day off for voting. This could start to shift if folks are engaged in, well, what ballots should go up? How should our referendums be done? Like who's running for our local city council? Should it be based on money? Right. Can we shift that? And that could actually happen if you have the time to both work on education and to work with other people. Um, so I think one of the benefits is really uh, detaching time from money and allowing time to be attached to what are the values we have in this society, whether it's diversity, whether it's democracy that looks like voting representation, whether it's economic equity so that I don't have to choose between giving my kids food or like improving my education. And I think those positive benefits would play out every day in especially in communities that have hourly wages, but in all communities, right? No matter what level of income you're at, you might be able to test something new and that curiosity, the same thing we really herald in like the tech industry and in companies could then become something that's accessible for everyday people. Those benefits are the main reason that I think we just need to get this going. And, uh, and once we do that, you know, people will see those benefits, they'll experience them, they're, you know, see them in their neighborhood, and it'll be pretty self-evident. So you spent time as an organizer in Richmond, California. So can you help us think through how to advocate for basic income from an organizing perspective? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the thing with organizing is, you know, sometimes there's a lead organizer, sometimes there's not, but it it's always coming from what the community wants. So <laughs> I think if you went into communities and you'd be like, hey, do you want universal basic income? A lot of folks would be like, no, I don't know what that is. Please stop. <laughs> but I think if you went into communities and you asked folks like, hey, what would allow you to live a better life? Like, what do you need every day? The answer is going to be like, hey, $100 every day wouldn't be like hurtful. Like, that'd probably help my life. Life, right? And so I think part of it is the framing and the rhetoric we use and really focusing on what communities need and what they're using the money for. Because a lot of our programs right now are attached, right? So you can only use this money for healthcare. You can only use this money for food. And all the research shows that folks improve their lives the best when they have freedom to use money the way that serves their life appropriately. So as an organizer, the first thing I would do is listen <laughs> and see what people actually want, where that money would be useful, how they feel about where the money comes from. I think once you start to understand that, you start to develop the stories and the folks who are really passionate. As an organizer, you're also you're always doing two things at once, right? You're trying to win a campaign that creates a policy shift or a cultural shift. In the meantime, you are you're stabilizing that campaign by helping to grow each individual who is part of your community, who's part of the organizing. So part of that would be, um, if we're talking about universal basic income, like education around how do you talk about economic equity policies? How do you talk about the current dialogue that we have that, hey, if we trickle this down, like everybody will be better off? Or, hey, if we have universal basic income, then we'll have to cut all these other programs, right? All these other welfare programs. So part of that teaching would happen. You would teach folks how to canvas and have conversations with people who would be really opposed to getting money from the government. 
So that's what's happening. At a policy level, you'd really want to focus on a few things. One, you'd have to figure out where the source of the funding is coming from. So if we're saying, hey, this is coming from the government and it needs to be appropriated in our budget from Congress, then we're looking at the Appropriations Committee and picking out key senators and Congress people to go after, right? And when we go after them, the most effective thing is actually phone calls and hearing stories. And so we are working with communities to tell their stories effectively and to jam up those lines. And then you want to develop the business side of it. So who are the who are the business coalitions or the business associates who might be interested in this as well? So you'd start building that coalition. Um, I think there's a lot of other creative tactics depending on what forces come into play. So there's always social media campaigns as tools to help create awareness. But you might want to have like a huge monopoly board going in San Francisco or in big cities all over the country at the same time talking about how does capitalism affect people? Like, well, how does monopoly play into our everyday life, right? And it has a few things attached to those kind of creative strategies. One, it always brings more people in. But two, it shows the country in a very visible way that we care about this and we're going to fight for this, right? So I think there are different levels depending on where you are in the organizing. So this is not just about basic income, but I would say political advocacy generally. Mm -hmm. There's some tension between aiming for the big, bold idea that you're not going to get for (laughs) 10, 20, 30 years versus having something more concrete and at least seemingly achievable that you can do in the shorter term. And I think particularly now that basic income has become at least somewhat more of a mainstream idea, you have people talking about both. You have folks looking at what might be city or state-level policies that could be achievable in the next few years, while recognizing that if we're talking about a full basic income that really lifts everyone up out of poverty, that's something that's still going to be a ways off, particularly with the current administration. So I'm curious, when thinking about the campaigning and the organizing, is it one versus the other? Is it a combination of those two? How, How do you view that? I think a lot of organizers have a debate whether economic and political policy has to change or culture has to change, right? It's like the chicken and the egg. Um, My sense is they're both interlayered because our lives are very intersected, right? We're very affected by culture, which is affected by political and economic policy. Our political and economic policy is also very affected by culture. So it goes both ways. Um, I think that typically with any campaign, like to get the big win, you've built years of foundation getting up to it, right? So the civil rights movement didn't happen in a day. LGBTQ rights, even a Supreme Court decision, like that took decades in the making. And I think the tension is you can't ask people to wait for change when their lives are at stake, right? And poverty really does kill. At the same time, you have to build a really stable foundation because with any politics, as we've seen with changing of administrations, policies go back and forth. So there's always going to be a peak and then a valley and then another peak and then a valley. And so in this current administration, it would make sense to start with city and state level policies and provide the examples of how it could work and the benefits And while that research is building up, you're continuing to pressure Congress, right? You're continuing to pressure at a federal level, but you're creating examples throughout the way until it becomes one of those things that's so common sense that if you don't do it, it doesn't make sense anymore. One of the buzzwords or buzz arguments around basic income is that it's something that both liberals and libertarians (laughs) like. And lately, I'm starting to hear the perspective that you express at the Netroots panel, which is that this is not 
a, a real coalition and that if we look at a, so a progressive vision with the basic income that doesn't substantially cut other programs, that maybe that coalition starts to fall apart. What coalition do you see to build support for the basic income for a progressive vision? What groups can we maybe look to to, to start to build up that that movement? Well, I think there are nuances in all groups, but I think like just initially folks who would be aligned in terms of a progressive view that looks at not cutting other programs, but also in how it's attached to equity-based policies, right? So we're not looking for a universal basic income that continues to perpetuate income inequity or racism or sexism like many of our policies have done. Um, I think you can count on students, university students, for facing the highest rates of student loans ever in the world. Um, You can certainly count on low-wage workers, hourly workers. I think those are folks who would be natural allies to this program. Um, Tech, especially in Silicon Valley, has expressed an interest in it. Now, whether or not that would be government-funded or tech-funded and what strings would be attached is debatable, but it could potentially be part of a progressive view. Um, Many racial justice organizing spaces or nonprofits are very involved and would be very interested in creating a founding level income. So I think that's another group of folks that would be naturally attracted to this. And then I think communities that we don't really like the Rust Belt, which everybody's been talking about since the election. And we say like, oh, they don't want government help. But I think if you frame it in a different way, right, um, if you talk about it in a different way, then perhaps they're also a natural ally. I think immigrants are often a natural ally to providing a baseline foundation. And I think the other group of people we don't often talk about is suburbs. So there's been a lot of focus on urban and rural areas, and that's great. But our cities have been built to create commuter economies. And people are moving further and further into the suburbs. And they're because time is money and their commute is so long, universal basic income would actually allow for the creation of more local economies and sort of cut that commuter economy in half. So that could be another potential natural ally. And I think once you get communities involved, it's much easier to get politicians involved. I think the other piece is, I would argue, like libertarians and then folks who are fighting for like black reparations are not necessarily natural <laughs> allies, Right. But they could be because people have people have the power to change and the prerogative to change. And I think a lot of it is how you communicate with people beyond their ideology. And this is where community organizing is really useful because community organizers and folks in the community focus on having one-on-ones and really getting to know people beyond like, oh, you stated this. How does this policy go against libertarian ideology? Or like, how can you support this if you say you don't want the government involved? kind of focuses more on like, well, what do you need in your everyday life? What does it look like every day? So I think there's also a role for expanding people's perceptions who might not be natural bedfellows. That was Ritu Modi, campaign manager for Presente.org on the Basic Income Podcast. It's really great to get a sense of what it would look like to really start doing organizing with communities on the ground and actually pushing basic income more widely with the grassroots audience. Yeah, I found that very insightful because that's the work that's going to need to start happening if we're actually going to start seeing policy enacted in the U.S. People are going to have to start knocking on doors and talking about this to people. And I thought Ritha's point about listening was really critical. I think those of us in the space have spent so much time thinking about the policy that often when we talk to people about it, we, we see ourselves as just means of communicating. We, we forget 
to actually pay attention to, to better understand what are the issues, what are the problems people are facing in their lives, and understanding how that connects. Because, I mean, every, everyone is different, different communities have these different needs, and if we're going to build this broad coalition, we need to really understand how basic income relates. One thing that is so powerful about the basic income is that when you do listen to people and what they need, so often a little bit of extra cash, if it doesn't solve the problem, would really help. And she had a great example of that uh, in how people interact with our criminal justice system. And bail reform is obviously a whole other issue. But the fact that some people you know, have their lives totally turned around just because they can't make bail is you know, a really powerful example of how cash can help deal with some of these problems. Right. Basic income may not be a silver bullet that's solving all our problems, but it is making so many things out there easier to solve. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Eric Davidson. Uh, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.